You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on October 22, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. Romans 11, 11-18 I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the, from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. <coughs> and if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we Consider these verses, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us a greater understanding of what these verses mean. And, Lord, an application as well to our lives, to our faith. Lord, may we be strengthened in faith and in your wonderful promises. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 11 is one chapter where great disputes and interpretation concerning end times occurs with how God is going to deal with Israel. Some say that this chapter predicts that Israel will come together as a nation in the end of time and that there will be an almost complete conversion of Israel as a, as a nation state to God, and that there will be a reign of 1,000 years of that nation state on earth prior to Christ's coming. Then others say that this passage says nothing about Israel of the future. It's all about the present. It's all about Paul's contemporary time frame, and there's no future role for Israel in God's plan of redemption. So there have been many biblical disputes about Romans chapter 11. Now, we've been looking at this question in recent weeks. Has God failed to keep his promises to Israel? Has God failed to keep his promises to Israel? Our Lord God made specific promises to to the patriarchs, that is to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, later called Israel, has he failed to keep these promises to Israel and their descendants or has God rejected his chosen people of Israel? 
And Paul answers these questions with an emphatic no. And he uses himself as an example. Paul reminds his listeners and his readers that he is a Jewish man and that he is a Christian. I trust in Jesus, the Messiah, he says, showing that God hasn't rejected his ancient people, Israel, for I'm a Hebrew. In fact, uh, Paul describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, doesn't he? And I'm a believer in Jesus, the Messiah. But Paul answers further that there is a remnant of believers, a remnant of Israel, that is, a remnant of ethnic Jews who also believe in Jesus, the Messiah, as the Messiah, and who also call themselves Christians. So God hasn't failed his promise. And Paul says, look around you and you will find in church, that is, he's speaking to the church in Rome, you'll find Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he points to, the, to this remnant of Israel who believe in Jesus the Messiah. And so from verse 11, Paul continues to develop a further part of his argument that God hasn't failed in his promises to Israel. Now, Paul, of course, is preaching, he's teaching uh, to a congregation, to a congregation that is predominantly made up of non-Jewish believers. That is, they are Gentiles, Gentile Christians. This church is the church in Rome. And this book is written about the middle 60s AD. Yes, there are Jewish Christians who belong to this congregation, who, of course, would have had contact with a larger Jewish community in Rome. But Paul is writing where Gentile Christians are actually in the majority. And the Gentile Christians may think to themselves that perhaps the greatest thing that God has done thus far in his wonderful plan of redeeming sinners is that the gospel message has gone out to the Gentile world, presenting to them that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Messiah. Now, this is an interesting concept. Even the non-believing world at the time of Christ even they were expecting something significant to happen when you read other writings. They were expecting somebody special to come. And these Gentile believers, they would argue with how wonderful it was that Gentiles were being saved, that they were being saved. The time that Paul is writing his epistle uh, to the Romans, there were more Gentile believers in Jesus than Jewish believers. It was this reality that also lead, led to a misapprehension and it led to misunderstanding by the Gentile believers. Some believers had thought thoughts of anger and they had a lack of love towards the Jewish people because many believers had experienced persecution from the Jews 
And so they avoided even the Jewish Christians in their fellowship and they avoided Jewish non-believers. But Paul desires to correct the Gentile believers' misunderstandings. Today I want us to consider from verse 11 that God's plan is gracious, that God's plan is gracious. And then secondly, as we look at verses 12 and 15 and 16, that the salvation of the Jew, the Jews, is designed to be a blessing for the Gentiles. And thirdly, in verses 13 to 14, what our attitude should be as Gentiles, that is non-Jewish believers, what our attitude ought to be toward the Jewish people. So God's plan is gracious. And verse 11, Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying two things in verse 11. First, he he denies that God's purpose in Israel's rejection of the gospel and, and of the Messiah, Jesus, was to cause Israel to finally fall. Okay, that's the first thing. Secondly, he's, he's denying that God is finished with Israel. What he's saying is that God still has a future hope for Israel. How does this, how, how does he approach this? How does he approach this? Well, he uses a, a, Paul's method is good teaching by asking questions, okay? That's a good good teaching method. We ask questions. Paul asks, had they stumbled that they should fall? And he emphatically answers, no, or certainly not in our version. May God forbid. The answer is no. Would you expect him to say yes? Have you ever fallen over? Have you ever tripped? As people get older, it's easy to fall. I was rushing out uh, of the garage uh, some time ago and I tripped and I landed very hard on my kneecaps. Boy, it hurt. And you'll be pleased to know that I didn't swear or curse. In fact, I, I laughed. I laughed at my stupidity because of my rushing around. But the pain was great and it took a little while to get over. But for many of us, we might expect Paul to say, yes, Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone, of course, which is Jesus, and they fell. Yes, they fell and finally now God is done with them. We might expect Paul to say that. But Paul's answer is the opposite. He says, no, God didn't allow Israel to fall for the purpose of of throwing them away or casting them off. God isn't finished with his people yet. You see, Paul's answer is an emphatic no. And it says that God has two purposes in sending his son into the world and have been rejected by his people and sending the apostles into the world where the gospel is mostly rejected by the Jewish people. And the first reason 
is so that by their transgression, that is, by their rejecting the gospel of God, salvation came to the Gentiles. In other words, in the wisdom of God, he used the unbelief of Israel with the resulting, the result that salvation then went to the Gentiles all around the known world at that time. And as the centuries unfolded to all the world. So God's purpose is actually gracious, even with the sin of Israel's unbelief. And you might ask, how did the gospel spread? Because Israel most rejected it. Now, we need to go back to the Abrahamic covenant. That is, we need to go back to Genesis uh, chapter 12 through uh, 15 and then later to 17. The Abrahamic covenant was not given just for the benefit of the ethnic lineage of, of Abraham. The promise of Abraham was ultimately for all the people of the earth. Israel was meant to be a blessing to the nations. They, of course, were given the oracles of God. That is, they were given God's word, the word of God, which over the centuries, as we read the Old Testament, was largely rejected by the nations about. So Israel stopped spreading it. And in some cases, they never started it. Now, Paul in verse 11 gives a reason for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To provoke who to jealousy? To make the Jewish people jealous. Here we find that God's plan of evangelism to the Gentiles, that is the conversion of Gentiles, has a view to the benefit of Jewish people. You might say that's all well and good and it's interesting that, uh, that, that what is revealed here. You know, here we have God's secret plan, which isn't secret anymore, but what has this to do with us Christians today? And the answer is, in God's plan of redeeming people, it brings blessing out of sin and judgment. He brings blessing out of the conversion of the Jews, which reveals and teaches us how God uses the severest judgments for the purposes of his grace. God always has a purpose. He always has a purpose to bring Blessing where there's been curses. And this is important to note and to remember as we consider the huge number of Christians that have been martyred down through the centuries and even in our, in, in our recent history today. There are huge martyrs, Christian martyrs, and they're martyred for their faith. God even uses the blood of the martyrs for his own gracious <coughs> purposes. It's important that uh, when we experience hard times in our lives that we also see God's gracious purposes are at work, even in the hardest of circumstances. What we need to see here is that God has a gracious plan even with the sin 
of Israel. And whilst his, his plan is ultimately uh, graciousness for Israel, it's the salvation of the Gentiles that he blesses in a very difficult situation of judgment and unbelief. That's the first thing that Paul teaches in this passage. Now, secondly, as we look at verses 12 and we might look at verse 15, Paul re repeats himself to be understood. What Paul is showing us is how the salvation of the Jews is actually a blessing for Gentile believers. So Paul argues if it was a blessing to the Gentiles that Israel mostly rejected the Messiah, how much more a blessing it's going to be to the Gentiles when Israel accepts the Messiah. What a great blessing to the Gentiles when Israel is reconciled, when Israel embraces the Messiah. Look at the words in verse 12. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If Israel's failure is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfilment be? And similarly in verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And what Paul is saying is that if there is blessing to Gentile Christians all over the world because Jewish people rejected Jesus and his gospel, how much greater blessing is going to result for the Gentiles when Israel embraces the gospel? Israel's rejection of the gospel brought blessing to the whole Gentile world. Their acceptance, Paul says, is going to do even more. And Paul is saying that God's work of grace in the present and in the future is going to be greater than his works of grace in the past. And this is very important for us to learn. It's often easy to think that the greatest things have been done in the past, the Romans, uh, the Roman church and perhaps ourselves today, we could easily conclude that the greatest thing that God has done in the history of the world in relation to his salvific plans is taking the gospel to the nations. And that's amazing when you think about it. It's amazing that all these Gentiles, all these non-Hebrew believers and these speakers are now worshipping the Messiah of Israel. And it could be easy for Gentile believers to conclude that God has, has done and is doing his greatest deed with the salvation of non-Jewish people. He's not going to do anything greater than this. This is how we might conclude. But Paul comes along and says that you haven't seen nothing yet. Or in the uh, Aussie vernacular, you ain't seen nothing yet. God's grace is going to be even greater in the future. I'm not sure about you, but I love the stories of the great movements. That is, the movements during the Reformation, the movements during the Great Awakening and, and the movements of the various revivals. If only it could be like that again. 
But Paul is saying God's work of grace in the future is going to be greater than what he's done in the past. Now, I know some of you like sports, some of you don't. That's okay, okay? When I was a young lad, I dreamed of playing test cricket for Australia. I imagined opening the batting for Australia and carting the fury of Jon Snow, Michael Holding and Andy Roberts over the MCG fence. You can tell how old I was then. If you're going to dream, then dream big. Now, that's good, honest boyhood imagination. Some of you will be lost, of course, with those names, but these were the best bowlers in their day when I started playing cricket. But these cricketers have been overtaken. They've been overtaken with those who have followed. In earlier days, they were larger than life, but they've been overtaken with even better cricketers. Now, Paul is saying to these Gentiles, it's amazing what God has done in bringing the Gentiles in, but you haven't seen nothing yet. God is going to do something in the future that's even greater. And it's going to involve not only a blessing for Israel, but it's going to encompass a wonderful blessing for you. Paul is saying that the salvation of the Gentile is for the benefit of the Jew and the salvation of the Jew is for the benefit of the Gentile. You see, God's plan of redemption is designed to, to work for their mutual, to work for all of our mutual benefit so that the Jew is for the Gentile and the Gentile for the Jew. Now, an obvious application here is that this passage ought to move Christians. It ought to move us toward a practical love of the Jewish people. It ought to move us for a desire and a longing in our prayer for their salvation. Now, I want to be just very clear here, especially with world events as they currently sit. I'm not advocating for an unwavering political support of the new state of Israel. I'm not trying to be political we currently have this tragedy of Jew and Palestinian warring with each other right at this moment and there are innocent victims, both Jew and Palestinian. And some innocent victims, especially uh, Palestinians, are actually Christian and we ought to pray for those as well. What I'm saying is that we should pray for and have a practical love for Jewish people, that they would come to Christ and realise that their waiting Messiah has already come. Now, I know that some of the great reformers got frustrated with the Jews. Martin Luther, the great reformer, got frustrated with the Jews. He eventually tried to convert every Jew in Germany and, of course, they, it wasn't the time and he got frustrated with them. But we should desire to see the salvation of the Lord come to the people of Israel. It certainly would fix the problem that exists in the Middle East today. Now, in Christian history, many horrible things have been done to Jewish people and some falsely under the guise of being Christian. 
And Paul is saying to this Roman church, I'm not concerned whether Jewish people were part of Nero's plan to get rid of you in Rome. Christians, you should love them for the sake of Christ because their salvation will be for your benefit. And in God's plan, your salvation is for their benefit. And Paul is teaching this Roman congregation to have a heart for Jewish people, even though they're often antagonistic toward toward you, even though they uh, persecute you. So Paul is moving believers to a practical love of the Jewish people. The Jewish community today, as always, has been very concerned with Christian conversion. The the, the devout Jew often finds it offensive when we endeavour to share the gospel and, and ask them to believe in Jesus. We could say the same thing about many and most religions. This last Friday night I was speaking to a Muslim man and he, he wasn't fussed about his, his Islam. He was really a nominal Muslim. You see, when we present Christ to a Jew or to a Muslim or to anyone else, we're asking them to turn their back on their heritage. We're asking them to turn their back on their culture and their religion And so often you may receive negative responses. But Paul, but from Paul's perspective, the greatest act of anti-Semitism that you can commit against a Jewish person or against the Jewish people as a whole is to not share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with them. And that goes for anyone as well and to refuse to pray that they might experience the true salvation that only comes through Jesus. And Paul is teaching us to have a heart of love, a heart of love for the Jewish people, which includes a longing to see them converted. Now, this was, uh, is very difficult in Paul's day, and it must be done with great sensitivity. Secondly, By way of practical application, Paul is teaching us from verses 12, 15 and 16 that God has designed the salvation of all his people in such a way that it serves the interest of the other. It serves the interest of the other. Therefore, in God's plan, the Jewish people reject the Messiah, which is God's purpose that results in the conversion of the Gentiles, which in turn results... And it's going to result in a blessing, a great blessing to Israel, which in turn flips the other way and results in a blessing to all the Gentiles. Think about this. The rejection of the Messiah by Israel results in the conversion of Gentiles and the conversion of the Gentiles results in a blessing for Israel and the blessing of Israel in turn results in a blessing for the Gentiles. And what we find here is a, a, cyclic, a, a cyclical blessing for all of God's people. Shouldn't this be the way it ought to be? You see, your salvation belongs to me because it encourages me, because it strengthens me and I benefit from it. And I pray that somehow you may see my salvation similarly for you. 
You know, that's why Christian fellowship is so important. You're not the only beneficiary of fellowship. Your brother or sister in Christ benefits as well because of you. Have you ever thought of that? During this year, we've heard the testimonies of a few people, somewhere in church, somewhere at weddings, and it, it, it excites me and it, it strengthens my faith, and I'm sure it did for you. Well, your salvation is, is designed by God to benefit one another. We ought to think about how God, through our, uh, we ought to think about how God, through our growing in faith, can be a blessing to one another. Okay. Now, finally, uh, let's consider verses thirteen and fourteen. Paul identifies himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, but then he says, "I want you to know that I have emphatically." a pro-Jewish ministry. Now, some Jews would have seen Paul as a traitor to Judaism. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced similar shunning. You've, you've experienced similar rejection because you've become a Christian. You've received the snide comments and you've received the snide remarks from family and maybe from friends. The subtle and not too subtle criticism for your faith. That's been a cost of coming to Christ. In some cases, you've been rejected by family and friends. Sometimes that's the cost of following Christ. A few years ago, I knew of a young Muslim woman. She was a teacher at uh, the Ballarat Christian College. And when she told her family when she was first converted, when she told her family that she converted to Christianity, they said to her, don't ever come here again because if you do, we will kill you. That's here in Australia. That's what was said. Many Jews in Paul's days would have seen him as turning his back on their truth because he embraced Jesus Christ. However, Paul saw his ministry to the Gentiles as a way to bless Israel. Verse 13 says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And verse 14, If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. This is how I think of my ministry to the Gentiles. Now, you in Rome, I want you to think about your ministry to the Jews. You here in Essendon, I want you to think about your ministry to the Jews. If I can encourage my ethnic fellow Jews to jealousy, to save some of them, I am magnifying my ministry to the Gentiles. You see, there's no conflict of interest here. When I try to encourage Gentiles to trust in God, I'm not doing that by excluding the salvation of my own countrymen. In fact, in God's plan, the blessing of salvation of the Gentiles is designed to bring Israel to saving faith. So there's no conflict of interest. Every time I share the gospel with a Gentile, I'm praying that God will bring the Jewish people, my brethren, to faith in Christ. 
So I'm praying to you Gentile Christians in Rome and I'm praying, uh, you know, in times beyond. I'm, I'm thinking of you Gentile Christians here in Essendon, in Mooney Ponds, we ought to think the same. Friends, Paul's saying that we ought to have a longing for the salvation of Jewish people, for the Jewish people. And he uses this shocking phrase, jealousy, that we ought to have a desire that Israel will see the blessings of Abraham coming to the Gentiles. And then that Israel will say, you know, God promised those blessings to us long ago and we ought to be enjoying those blessings ourselves. Paul isn't saying that we're to provoke them to jealousy. Envy is not the instrument of grace, rather faith is. As Gentiles are being grafted in to the kingdom of God, may the Jew be jealous to desire the promises, the promises that have been long forgotten, which were first given to them, and seek out his kingdom also. Friends, it's through our experience of God's grace in our own lives and as we see it in the lives of our brethren, and it's in our experience of the promises of God which ought to be on display, which ought to be on display to his ancient people so that they desire to embrace him also. Friends, I want you to go away today not thinking that God has yet done with Israel. Amen? Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these words, we ask, Lord, that you would bless them to us, help us to think about these things, help us to get a, a biblical understanding of them, help us to have a love for the lost and especially uh, also for God's chosen people initially. And, Lord, that we do pray for their salvation. We know, Lord, that you are saving a remnant even now and we look forward to that day when you might call many, many more home to you, that you may do something even greater than what's been done in the past. And, Lord, help us as your people to hold on to your promises, all your promises that are contained in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.